0: This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals.
1: The information presented is for general educational purposes only and should not be used as professional medical advice or for the diagnosis or treatment of medical conditions. The views and opinions expressed do not represent the views and opinions of our employer or any affiliated institution. Expressed opinions are based on scientific facts under certain conditions and subject to certain assumptions and should not be used or relied upon for any other purpose, including but not limited to... The diagnosis or treatment of medical conditions or in any legal proceeding.
0: Full terms and conditions can be found at portablebeats.com. and now on the episode. Howdy and welcome to Portable Beats, the pediatric board review podcast. Last week, you were with the girls, and I'm back this week. I'm Ryan, and with me this week is Sam. Hey, guys. All right, so last week, we talked about neck, and this week, we're going to have our final case of the month with newborn medicine, talking about respiratory distress of the newborn. And then next week, we got a review episode for you that'll tie up all the high-yield points from the month in a nice, succinct package for you. But let's jump right in. If you haven't heard our podcast before, we do a case-based presentation where we talk about a case, specifically this month, is newborn medicine, and then we have five answer choices. We'll give you a sec to think about it, and then we'll explain what's right and what's wrong about the case, and then some teaching points about it. So a female infant is born at 38 weeks gestation to a G2P1 mother with known gestational diabetes via a scheduled repeat C-section. Initial APGAR scores are 8 and 9 at 1 and 5 minutes, respectively. About an hour later, the child begins to develop tachypnea with a respiratory rate of 70, along with nasal flaring and grunting, which improves with supplemental oxygen via nasal cannula. A chest x-ray is obtained, which showed findings consistent with the diagnosis of transient tachypnea of the newborn. What findings would you expect to see on the chest x-ray for this patient? Answer choice A, diffuse parenchymal infiltrates with fluid in the interlobar fissure, B, Diffuse parenchymal infiltrates with air bronchograms or lobar consolidation. C, diffuse bilateral ground glass opacities with air bronchograms. D, diffuse patchy infiltrates with areas of hyperinflation. Or E, left-sided intrathoracic stomach bubble with a shift of the mediastinum and cardiac silhouette to the right. So I'll give you a sec to think about it, and we'll be back in a sec. All right. Well, if you guys need another sec to think about it, hit the pause button and jump back in whenever you're ready. The case is in the show notes if you need to read it yourself. But Sam, you want to take it away?
1: Absolutely. So the correct answer is A. Diffuse parenchymal infiltrates with fluid in the interlobar fissure. There's a great Peds and Review article from 2014 titled Respiratory Distress to the Newborn that discusses the majority of these disease processes. You can find the link for this in the references. So let's go through these answer choices, starting with the correct answer, A. So transient tachypnea of newborn, or TTN, is a common newborn cause of respiratory distress due to retained fetal lung fluid in term and late preterm infants. During fetal development, the lung alveoli are fluid-filled, and towards the end of pregnancy, the fetus starts removing this alveolar fluid to allow for effective gas exchange. This process is enhanced by labor, so naturally, TTN tends to occur more often in neonates who do not undergo labor so those who are precipitous labor deliveries or scheduled C-sections, typically. Other risk factors include gestational age, less than 39 weeks, fetal distress, maternal sedation, and maternal diabetes. This disease process is usually self-limited and normally does not require the use of mechanical ventilation. However, use of antenatal corticosteroids, such as two doses of beta given at least 48 hours prior to C-section, can help decrease respiratory morbidity in these infants. So let's walk through the rest of these answer choices and why they're incorrect and a little bit about their disease processes. Do you want to start with answer choice B?
0: Yeah, so answer choice B sounds very similar to A. It also has diffuse parenchymal infiltrates, but this one is a little different because it has air bronchograms or lobar consolidation. And this is specifically talking about neonatal pneumonia. So neonatal pneumonia can be acquired at birth or during pregnancy. So it's perinatal versus congenital pneumonia. Perinatal pneumonia is the most common cause of neonatal pneumonia, with the common causative organism being group B strep, or GBS. Congenital pneumonia, however, can be passed transplacentally from the mother and can be caused by a bunch of different organisms, such as rubella, CMV, adenovirus, enterovirus, mumps, toxoplasma, treponema pallidum or syphilis, mycobacterium tuberculosis, listeria, varicella zoster, and HIV. So a lot of things. Risk factors for developing this infection include prolonged rupture of membranes, or PROM, maternal infection, and prematurity. This infectious process often presents as part of a generalized septic illness requiring blood and CSF cultures and empiric antibiotics. For this, listen to our previous episode on management of the febrile neonate for further discussion. That would be episode 4. There is also a great neonatal early-onset sepsis calculator published by Kaiser Permanente if you need further guidance on obtaining a blood culture and starting empiric antibiotics, especially if these infants are at least 34 weeks gestation. That's what this tool is validated for. It calculates your patient's septic risk based on gestational age, maternal temp, rupture of membranes duration, maternal GBS status, and the use of intrapartum antibiotics. The higher the maternal temp and the longer the rupture of membranes, the more likely it'll recommend considering a blood culture and starting empiric antibiotics, but also be sure to use your clinical judgment. If it says that the child looks unstable and has severe vital sign derangements, it always recommends obtaining a blood culture and starting empiric antibiotics.
1: Which makes sense. <laughs>
0: So next is answer choice C, which is diffuse bilateral ground glass opacities with air bronchograms. And this is talking about RDS, or respiratory distress syndrome. This is incredibly common in premature infants due to alveolar surfactant deficiency. But before we can talk about how infants get surfactant, we should take a step back and talk globally about the five embryonal stages of lung development, which I know everyone loves talking embryology.
1: I just got a little bit of palpitations. (laughs) Uh, Okay, here we go.
0: Now, save your palpitations for the cardiology month. So first stage, embryonic. This is in the first six weeks of development, and this is where the trachea and the bronchi are formed. So basically your big structures. If this stage has defective growth, infants can develop TEF, or tracheoesophageal fistulas, or pulmonary sequestration. The next stage, so you're going a little more further out from those, and this is the pseudoglandular stage. This lasts from week 7 to 16, and this is where the bronchioles, the terminal bronchioles, and lung circulation develop. So this is also where infants can develop defects such as bronchogenic cysts, congenital diaphragmatic hernias, or CDH, we'll talk about that in just a minute, and congenital cystic adenomatoid malformations. What a mouthful. The third stage is the canalicular stage. This is from weeks 17 to 24, and at this point, the respiratory bronchioles and the primitive alveoli develop. If these grow incorrectly, infants can develop pulmonary hypoplasia, RDS, BPD, and alveolar capillary dysplasia. The next stage is the fourth stage, the terminal sac. This lasts from weeks 25 to 36 weeks of gestation, and this is when the fetus develops alveolar ducts, thin-walled alveolar sacs, and throughout this stage, they increasingly gain function in their type 2 pneumocytes. These type 2 pneumocytes are the surfactant producing cells in the lungs. So if children are born during this stage, they're at increasing risk for developing RDS and bronchopulmonary dysplasia, also known as BPD. So if the child is premature less than 37 weeks, that they'll be in this stage. And that's typically when they are more risk for having RDS.
1: Also, I've seen that question come up so many times. So remember that type 2 pneumocytes and surfactant-producing cells. Synonymous, just remember it.
0: (laughs) Exactly. And in this case, our patient was full-term, therefore they were at less risk of having RDS and making it a less likely answer choice. But the fifth and final stage of lung development is the alveolar stage, and this goes from week 37 until they're born. This is when the lungs develop the definitive alveoli and mature type 2 pneumocytes, Infants born during this stage are at increasing risk for developing transient tachypnea of the newborn, meconium aspiration syndrome, neonatal pneumonia, and persistent pulmonary hypertension, or PPHN. In this case, we didn't specifically talk about cyanotic congenital heart disease, acyanotic congenital heart disease, and persistent pulmonary hypertension. That goes in kind of a different conversation topic and we could have an entire episode on those things and we probably will at some point. But this we wanted to focus specifically on lung and pulmonary causes of difficulty breathing in this case. So we'll talk about that another time. So back to RDS. These kids are typically born before 36 weeks and have not yet developed enough surfactant. Surfactant decreases the surface tension in the alveoli and prevents microatelectasis and low lung volumes and instead allows the alveoli to remain open and allow for efficient gas exchange. The risk factors for RDS include prematurity, gestational diabetes, multiple gestation, and male infants. So infants of a diabetic mother are at increased risk for RDS because hyperinsulinemia has been shown to delay fetal lung development, especially in terms of surfactant production. However, just like in the previous answer choice, administration of corticosteroids 48 hours prior to delivery, such as two doses of betamethasone, has been shown to stimulate surfactant production and decrease the risk of RDS in premature infants. So, Sam, you want to take it over for the final two?
1: Yeah. And another fact I actually just learned on my NICU rotation was the fact that the high glucose levels in those babies actually inactivate the surfactant that they do have. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, So the instruist D, diffuse patchy infiltrates with areas of hyperinflation. So this one is actually pretty consistent with meconium aspiration syndrome. And that's a process that's due to neonates aspirating meconium, as the name implies, which then causes a chemical pneumonitis and partial obstruction, leading to air trapping and hyperaeration. Additionally, meconium has many components, one of which is bile acids. These bile acids locally inactivate pulmonary surfactant, causing atelectasis. Meconium is present in the fetal GI tract as early as 16 weeks, but it does not move into the descending colon until about 34 weeks, so therefore it's uncommon to see MAS prior to 37 weeks of gestation. Risk factors for meconium aspiration syndrome include meconium stained amniotic fluid seen on delivery, post-term gestation, so greater than 40 weeks gestation, fetal stress, and African-American ethnicity.
0: And so the post-term gestation is really talking more about the fetal stress component, Because once they're at a post-term gestation, if they're 41 or 42 weeks, they're more likely to get stressed and have meconium-stained amniotic fluid.
1: That makes sense. Interesting. Okay, so let's wrap it up with answer choice E which is a longer answer, but it says left-sided intrathoracic stomach bubble was shifted the mediastinum and cardiac silhouette to the right. So this one you can tell is a little bit different than the rest of them. And this actually is pretty suggestive of a congenital diaphragmatic hernia. So this is due to a defect in the diaphragm. So the abdominal organs are able to migrate into the chest during embryonic development, which leads to a pulmonary hypoplasia on the affected side. Per a Pediatrics and Review article from 1999, about 85% of the diaphragmatic defects are left-sided, 13% are right-sided, and 2% are actually bilateral, which I found was interesting. Congenital diaphragmatic hernias can be a solitary defect, combined with multiple other defects, or due to chromosomal abnormalities, which you should think of trisomies 18 and 21 for this. This defect might be noted prenatally, with low maternal serum alpha-fetoprotein, and ultrasound findings of polyhydramnios and an intrathoracic gastric bubble. If you're interested in reading more about the management of CDH, there's a great NEO Reviews article from the AAP in 2016 listed in the references. So I think that about wraps up all these answers.
0: Yeah, thanks for sharing, Sammy. If you haven't followed us before, we're on social media. We have a website. But the most important thing you can do this week, rate our podcast. Go on Apple Podcasts or whatever your podcasting platform of choice is and give us a rating. But tune in next week where we have a review episode where we wrap up all of the findings from the month and the high yield points about newborn medicine. And then next month, we're going to go into metabolic disorders with glycogen storage disorders, lysosomal storage disorders, and amino acidopathies. So tune in next time and happy studying.
1: Bye, guys. Have a good week.